Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. Thank you so much. I am naturally indebted to truly, truly great. And the Oscar goes to... Welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's our producer, Kayla. Howdy. Hello. We're here. We're here with an episode you can't refuse. Uh-huh. I figured I would beat you to the punch. <laughs> I knew it was somewhere in your mind. I was going to say something about... We're not sleeping with the fishes. Uh, <laughs> that too. If you haven't guessed or didn't see the title, today we're talking about The Godfather. All right. The 45th Academy Awards. Yeah. Big, 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 big year. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Yeah. Honestly, not super crazy in terms of like all the pictures, but between Godfather, yeah. Cabaret, and then some of those other mm-hmm. movies that garnered one or two things. Yeah. But just considered a big year for film. Yes. Mostly because of The Godfather. Yeah. This is the first time ever watched for me, uh-huh. which was interesting. Like a few others in our watching history. Yeah. I don't have a lot of a uh, classic film history <laughs> experience. So. <laughs> and it wasn't your favorite film ever. It was not. <laughs> hmm, imagine that. I did not dislike it. I was just like, well, I don't get the hype. But Well, that was a film. That was a film. That's okay. Well, we'll talk all about that and more things, because uh, it's also a pretty big year for the ceremony things. Mm-hmm. Um, but first, we will bring you the Penny News. The news about Penny. A pup date. So recently, uh, Penny has been up to something funny. <laughs> Whenever people come in, uh, you know how dogs just run and greet, and they're so excited for when their owners or people come in. So when we come in, to greet Penny, uh, she does not get super excited to see us. What she gets excited for is to go get a toy to show us. So she'll like get excited and kind of bark and like wag, 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 and she'll run halfway to us. Like she'll run from one side of the living room to like the entrance to the hallway where we have our door, but she will not greet us. Instead, she turns right back around and tails it to the toy bin to find the perfect toy to show. And she doesn't come and show it to us. She just jumps up on the couch and is like, ah, yes, now watch me play with my toy. And it's funny because, like, we have a roommate, Laura, who comes through a lot. And, like, she'll say, hi, pup. And Penny will run around, but she won't go greet Laura. She'll just grab her toy. And so now we're like, yeah, Penny. Yeah, I get it. So that's something funny that Penny has been yeah, up to so recently. Don't expect a, a great hello from her if you come over anytime soon. <laughs> expect to be ignored. <laughs> Good job, Penny. Well, shall we get into this ceremony? Yes, I want to get right into it because I have a lot to talk about today. Uh, quite uh, a lot. Uh, the ceremony was a tricky trickster, so hmm. we have quite a lot to go over. So let's get into it. This ceremony, the 45th Academy Awards, was held on March 27th, 1973 at, again, the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. Mm -hmm. This ceremony was directed by Marty Pacetta, and this is important to note, it was produced by Howard W. Koch, because he's coming back around, we're going to have to talk about him later. Mm -hmm. So the hosts for this year were Carol Burnett, Michael Caine, Charlton Heston, and Rock Hudson. Mm -hmm. And of course, the first thing that happens right as the ceremony starts after, of course, they do their opening number, including Angela Lansbury and all these people doing like all this like big stuff. The first person who's supposed to come out is Charlton Heston to do the first thing Mm. after the president. Uh, And he was late. Uh Apparently, he got a flat tire on the way, and so he was running, running late. So they were, like, kind of desperately looking for someone, and Clint Eastwood happened to be sitting right at the front. So they asked him to step in until Charlton Heston got there. Oh, boy. Because Clint Eastwood was there to present for Best Picture later Mm. on in the ceremony. So they're like, don't worry about it. We've got the cue cards. Just read off the cue cards. What they didn't think about was all of the jokes on the cue cards were tailored towards the Ten Commandments. Yeah, right. Of so, course. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 
so funny. I watched the clip of it and it's so ridiculous because he's basically like saying the lines, but he's saying them like deadpan. And about halfway through, he like gets through some of the line and then they don't like flip the card immediately. So he goes, come on, flip the card, man. This is not my bag. And he like is trying to get through it. And um, like halfway through the joke, finally, Charlton Heston shows up and runs on stage. And you can see Clint Eastwood go like shake his head and be like, oh, OK, feel And he like runs off stage. Oh my. And then Charlton Heston stands there and like they flip the card back and he says all the jokes again. But like with charisma. Uh. That's how the evening started. And of course, the industry people loved this. They just of thought course. it was hilarious. Uh-huh. So Every- funny. Everybody was like dying. They were laughing at Clint Eastwood trying to be Charlton Heston. Like, and he's obviously Clint Eastwood. He doesn't like do charismatic things. Like, right. just very funny. So that was the start of the night. Also, I kind of mentioned this, but there is a really nice opening number with Angela Lansbury. Um, she sings a bunch of songs from movies, uh, including Make a Little Magic from mm. Bed Knobs and Broomsticks and all this stuff. So this year, the two main film competitors, as I've kind of mentioned, were Cabaret and The Godfather. And very sadly, (laughs) Cabaret set a record this year for the most Oscars won without Best Picture. And it holds to this day, which is eight. Wow. Yeah. So, of course, there's like lots of feelings about this because they did win so many awards. Mm -hmm. But The Godfather also was really important in film history. It really changed the way that people made movies and approached movies, especially mafia style, that kind of thing. So like there's an argument both ways. Personally, I love Cabaret, so mm-hmm. I would have chosen Cabaret. But mm. um, The Godfather only ended up receiving three Academy Awards total. Yeah. So, you know, just take that for what it is, I guess. This year also, it's worth mentioning because I talked about this at the last Academy Awards, Charlie Chaplin won his only competitive Oscar ever. Yeah. And he wins it for Best Original Dramatic Score this year. Uh, for his film Limelight, which actually came out 20 years prior. But if you recall, during the last episode, I talked about how he happened to be back in L.A. because they were doing remasters of some of his films and they were doing their very first Los Angeles premieres. So this is the first year that it screens in Los Angeles, which means it's the first time that it's eligible for an Oscar, which is why he finally wins an Oscar for this film. Yeah, so strange. And like, I don't know. It's just a weird little tidbit of like... It's such an old movie. Yes. And it just like didn't premiere in LA. Yep. So they can now premiere it's now. eligible for an Oscar. Yeah. It's like a weird loophole kind of situation. And unfortunately, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, however you perceive it, the Academy loves him and they just honored him. So they're kind of like on this train already. Yeah, right. Uh, additionally, during the ceremony, there was a musical salute to Walt Disney Studios' 50th anniversary. Oh, wow. Very yeah, fun. Yeah, which was pretty big. They had a bunch of characters come out singing and dancing mm. and doing all that kind of stuff. That's cool. Um, the other thing that's really important to mention is that this is the first time of the first year that two black women received nominations for Best Actress. Wow. So nice. both Diana Ross and Cicely Tyson both received nominations. Diana Ross for Lady Sings the Blues and Cicely Tyson for Sounder for mm-hmm. Best Actress. Yeah. So well. that's pretty great. Also, both great performances. Yeah, very good. Very strong performances from incredible actresses. Also, <laughs> this is a kind of a strange thing that they tried this year. At the end of the ceremony, they decided to bring out all of the winners to the stage uh-huh. to like say goodbye, say yes. goodnight kind of thing, <laughs> um, which they hadn't ever done before. So that was just kind of a new thing like that they... everyone who won an award that yes, night. Yes, came and stood on the stage oh, and boy. like, you know. That's a lot. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I didn't see if that's something that continues for very long or not, but yeah. I tried it out. Yeah. That's kind of what goes on with the ceremony. I've got a couple of other things I want to talk about. The first thing I wanted to talk about was there were some eligibility controversies this year. Yes. That made things complicated. So the first controversy is about the score for The Godfather. Yes. So initially, the nominations are announced on February 12th, 1973. And The Godfather received 11 nominations, which was more than any other film that year. But Mm -hmm. it was reduced to 10, which tied with Cabaret. Because they ended up having to do a new vote with the music branch of the Academy um, because there was a controversy over whether Nino Rota's score for The Godfather was eligible for this nomination. Mm -hmm. The reason is because it had technically already been used by Nino Rota in Fortunella, which is an Italian movie that they made several years earlier. Well. One of the a couple of the songs, not the whole entire score. Right, right, right. But there are the love theme specifically. Yeah, it was used in this former movie that right 
they were a part of. And so they had to like kind of figure out whether it was still going to be eligible or not. So what they ended up doing was just reballoting. Um, members of the music branch chose five nominees from six films uh, that had been shortlisted. So it was The Godfather and five other films, and it did not end up getting nominated after that. Mm. Um, so instead, John Aston's score for Sleuth won the new vote and replaced it in the official list of nominees. Interesting. So that was kind of one of the things that knocked The Godfather down a little bit from its grandeur mm-hmm. of having the most nominations. The other thing that happened was that the nominations for the category of Best Original Song were not announced in February with the rest of the nominations because apparently there was a mix-up in the balloting. Oh. Once again, it was a question of eligibility because they had to consider whether the song Freddy's Dead, which was by Curtis Mayfield from the film Superfly, should be considered eligible. Finally, it was ruled that this song was ineligible because the lyrics were not sung in the film. So the song was released Mm. as a single with lyrics, but the version that is used in the film was instrumental. Interesting. So they had to kind of decide if it could be considered best original song um, or if it was just score, Mm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, this is what I got from the Academy governor, John Green, who said, quote, times have changed. In the old days, Hollywood made 30 or 40 musicals a year, and there were plenty of songs to choose from. Now there are hardly any, and most of the eligible songs are themes. Both the lyric and the music must be heard on the soundtrack to be eligible. Hmm. So Interesting. that was kind of just like they had to end up defining that in a way that they hadn't in the past. Yeah, right. Yeah, the times have changed. That they have. That they have. All right. And all of this nonsense <laughs> brings us to a very pivotal point in Academy history. Mm-hmm. So one of the like most well-known things yeah. about like Academy history. And strangely enough, a an event that has only been resolved within the last few weeks of us recording this. Yeah. Resolved, I say, loosely. Yeah. All right. So this year, um, this ceremony was marked by Marlon Brando's boycott of the Oscars. And instead of attending, he sends up Sasheen Littlefeather to explain why he could not collect his Best Actor Award for The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sasheen Littlefeather was 26. She was Apache and Yaqui. Um, and she took the stage to decline the prize on behalf of Marlon Brando. Um, so at this point, she was a very, very little known actress. She did want to break into the acting industry. Um, and she was at this time president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. Hmm. Um, so she and Marlon Brando had very strangely become friends because she happened to be sort of neighbors with Francis Ford Coppola, who directed The Godfather. Oh, interesting. You know, at this point in her life, she is petitioning across the nation for different things. And so she asks him, Francis Ford Coppola, to pass on a letter to the actor um, that she had written about his interest with Native American issues. So when the award was announced, uh, they look around to see if Marlon Brando is going to be there. But of course, he's not. And they all kind of knew that he wasn't mm-hmm. going to be there. Um, and Sashi Littlefeather stands up and she goes down the aisle and she goes to the stage. Um, Roger Moore extends the award to her, but she waves it away with an open palm. Um, so before this, Marlon Brando had talked to her about what he wanted to happen. He said to just speak very quickly, very bluntly. He had given her a speech. Um, And sadly, when she was standing backstage before all of this had happened, um, Howard W. Koch, who I mentioned is the producer for this, he saw that she had these pages in her hand and got very upset about this. He kind of could see the controversy happening as it was going on. Hmm. Um, And so he pulled her aside and told her that if she spoke for more than 60 seconds, he would have her arrested. And so this kind of sets this like chaotic tone and like a little bit of pressure and urgency for her as well. Um, So Marlon Brando told her beforehand to not touch the trophy at all. He gave her his eight page speech, which admittedly is a long speech. Well, and also like a little bit weird for him to be like, here's all the things that I want you to say about yourself. Yes. (laughs) Well, and it's not even so much about yourself, but about the the issues with the the film industry and the way that they approach indigenous people groups and the way they present them in films. Oh, um, magnanimous man, Marlon Brando. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, this this is very stressful. So she decides that she's going to get up there and she's just not going to say everything he had told her to say. And instead, what ends up happening is it's printed in the paper the next day. So his mm. full speech is available to read. You can read it. I believe it's the New, the New York Times printed it. Okay. Um, but she instead cuts it down. She speaks very quickly and very off the cuff just to kind of get it out. This is the very first time that an indigenous woman had stood on stage at the ceremony in full garb. Um, She was wearing her buckskin dress, moccasins, her hair ties, 
And of course, people freaked out in the audience. Mm-hmm. So uh, now I figured it'd be easier to just play this clip of her speech from the Oscars for you. Hello, my name is Sasheen Littlefeather. I'm Apache, and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening, and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, excuse me, and on television in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I beg at this time that I have not intruded upon this evening and that we will, in the future, our hearts and our understandings will meet with love and generosity. Thank you on behalf of Marlon Brando. So, as you can kind of see, it's not that controversial. No. It's kind of just a very simple statement. Well, and I'm sure it's better than whatever he was going to have said, too. (laughs) Like... Yeah, I mean, his statement is not terrible. Like, I will say it is a pretty thoughtful statement, and it is more about the industry and Mm -hmm. the way the industry, which he is a huge part of, treats people, um, which is decent. Um, But he's obviously using her a little bit in this moment as a bit of a prop. And it becomes a very difficult thing for her. So immediately, she is just being shouted at people are booing at her they're doing racist gestures in the audience um and apparently she is being threatened with violence off stage there is a legend that or a rumor i guess that has gone around that john wayne like tried to like like run and like grab her off the stage that kind of thing it had to be restrained by bodyguards and that has since been dismissed by academy members but who knows i think that there is a world in which something like that has happened or at least they like jumped up or that kind of thing mm-hmm. but of course like the conservative celebrities like john wayne and clint eastwood and charlton heston they were very very vocally against all of these things um against her presence there of all so apparently after this she goes to marlon brando's house right afterwards and people shot at the doorway when she got there like it was just like immediate backlash well and the thing that's so weird to me about this is like he did this thing Mm -hmm. and then he wasn't there to like help or defend her at all he was just like here why don't you go do this thing and like take the brunt of all this whatever reminder that she's a 26 year old person yeah who is an activist and eager to make a huge public statement. Like she wants to make a change. Right. And this is a huge opportunity. And in some ways she is being used as a prop and she has to deal with the consequences of a difficult action that she is not prepared or supported in Mm -hmm. by Marlon Brando. So that is my criticism of him. Well, and also like at this point in his career and something I'll talk about more too, is like the industry doesn't really like him anymore anyways. Yeah. So like, he, you know, is avoiding backlash of the industry toward him, too. Sure. Yeah, right. Like, mm-hmm. he's already done some things that the industry's like, you know, we don't really want you around anymore. Yeah, yeah. Poor Sasheen Littlefeather had a lot to deal with after this because the media outlets went crazy. Mm-hmm. They questioned her heritage um, because her father was indigenous, but her mother was white. Mm-hmm. And she didn't start exploring her heritage until she was, you know, in college. Um, mm-hmm. She, like... She went to California State, and um, at that point, she started to, like, reclaim some of it, and she changed her name at that point um, with her activist friends to reclaim some of that heritage as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like, some of those things came up, and people used them to discredit her, to discredit her statement, to make it seem like it was all for show, that kind of thing. But yet, she did do quite a lot of activism and before and after Mm -hmm. this event. I also think it's worth mentioning that she got a full scholarship to study acting at San Francisco's American Conservatory Theater, which she did. 
And she tried to be an actor in the industry for a long time, but just couldn't get roles. And the only speaking parts she was able to get for most of the time were in Italian films because Mm -hmm. they, in her words from her, one of her interviews said, quote, they like the exotic. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that kind of came up that was really difficult um, for her to cope with was that in 1972, so right before this, she participated in a planned Playboy shoot um, that was scrapped like right before the occupation at Wounded Knee because in it she's in indigenous garb. And Mm. unfortunately, after this appearance, Playboy still printed it, but as a standalone feature, which Mm. only further discredited her in people's eyes. Right. Again, just the industry being what it is and screwing people over. And, you know, she kind of went back about it. One of the things she said was, quote, I was a spokesperson, so to speak, for the stereotype of Native Americans in film and television. All I was saying was, we don't want Chuck Connors playing Geronimo. Yeah, Which I feel like is a very simple request. Of course, Marlon Brando addressed this after the fact. He went on the Dick Cavett show a couple months after the Oscars and said that he was very, quote, embarrassed for Sasheen. She wasn't able to say what she intended to say. And I was distressed that people booed and whistled and stomped, even though perhaps it was directed at myself. They should have at least had the courtesy to listen to her. Okay, then you should have been there to like help facilitate the moment if it was so important. Well, and of course, this stunt was... It was intended to get attention on Wounded Knee at this time. Right. Unfortunately, it put Sachin Littlefeather at risk. It also, she lost her guild memberships because of this. Mm -hmm. She was banned from the industry. She essentially was blacklisted. And another thing that the Academy decided to do after this was they prohibited winners from sending proxies to accept or reject Oscars on their behalf after this for a while. (laughs) Because they were like, no more. And it's weird because like up to this point, a lot of people, actors in particular, have not either wanted to be there or have not been able to be there because of their shooting schedules. And usually they would have like a very, very close friend of theirs do it. And they would not say anything ever. No. So I can understand why the producer was like, wait, you have like all those pages of a speech. Right. This is not a thing that normally happens. Yeah. Whether or not he knew it was going to be political or not. Yeah. He was like, like, there was this no precedent not, for it. Yeah, what we do. Yeah. Well, and I will say that one of the things I wanted to mention is that this starts this new trend of, first of all, having an Oscar speech that is about anything other than mm-hmm. thanking people and saying, like, you can do it, keep going, that kind of thing. Right. Um, it's the first one to bring up any kind of conversation um, or, like, political things or anything like that. And it also, like, has been cited as an inspiration for most people's, you know, criticisms of the Oscars mm-hmm. and most people's uh, acceptance speeches that bring up issues that are close to their heart instead of just movie industry related things. Mm-hmm. Um, Jada Pinkett Smith cited this as her inspiration for her boycott of the 2016 Academy Awards with the hashtag Oscar So White ceremony. Um, and at the time, both she and Sasheen Littlefeather exchanged emails and, um, in which Jada Pinkett Smith wrote, quote, thank you for being one of the brave and courageous to help pave the way for those of us who need a reminder of the importance to simply be true. And of course, she was seen as a trailblazer for a lot of other indigenous people who wanted to be involved in the industry, filmmakers, producers, that kind of thing. And I just wanted to kind of give a little bit of about her life after this incident real quick. She ended up quitting acting for good, um, and she ended, she earned a degree in holistic health from Antioch University with a minor in Native American medicine. Hmm. Um, she continued to work in wellness. She wrote a health column for the Kiowa tribe uh, in Oklahoma. Uh, she taught uh, traditional medicine uh, at a program at St. Mary's Hospital in Tucson, Arizona, and she also, believe it or not, worked with Mother Teresa oh, on behalf wow. of AIDS patients in the Bay Area, oh, cool. which is pretty cool. Uh, she also served as a founding me- a founding board member for the American Indian AIDS Institute of San Francisco. Hmm. Uh, and she continued to support the arts by co-founding the nonprofit National American Indian Performing Arts Registry in the early 80s. She advised on a bunch of PBS programs, and she continued to be an advocate, of course, for indigenous inclusion in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, congrats to her. She had an amazing life despite this nonsense. And to resolve all of this, not that it is resolved, but whatever, um, the Academy just this year issued an apology to her. So, (laughs) On behalf of Marlon Brando, (laughs) number one. (laughs) On behalf of the Academy. So they issued this apology on June 18th of 2022. 
I'm going to read it to you because it's not very long. So it says, Dear Sashin Littlefeather, I write to you today a letter that has been a long time coming on behalf of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences with humble acknowledgement of your experience at the 45th Academy Awards. As you stood on the Oscars stage in 1973 to not accept the Oscar on behalf of Marlon Brando in recognition of misrepresentation and mistreatment of Native American people by the film industry, you made a powerful statement that continues to remind us of the necessity of respect and the importance of human dignity. The abuse you endured because of the statement was unwarranted and unjustified. The emotional burden you have lived through and the cost to your own career in our industry are irreparable. For too long, the courage you showed has been unacknowledged. For this, we offer both our deepest apologies and our sincere admiration. And, you know, to be honest, I'm not going to read the rest of it because it's basically like, we're going to do better. So mm-hmm. that's what it is. Um, and what I will say about this is that she responds with the utmost grace and forgiveness. And she has throughout her whole life. All of her interviews all of the quotes from her are very rooted in grace and rooted in oneness and rooted in wanting to create peace between all people. Mm-hmm. So when she received this this letter, um, she said about it, quote, it feels like the sacred circle is completing itself before I go in this life. She also said, quote, I was stunned. I never thought I'd live to see the day I would be hearing this, experiencing this. When I was at the podium in 1973, I stood there alone. I'm here accepting this apology, not only for me, but as acknowledgement, knowing that it was not only true for me, but for all of our nations that also needed to hear and deserve this apology tonight. Look at our people. Look at each other and be proud that we stand as survivors, all of us. Please, when I'm gone, always be reminded that whenever you stand for your truth, you will be keeping my voice and the voice of our nations and our people alive. So after they received this letter, the Academy scheduled an evening with Sashi Littlefeather on September 17th. 2022 to publicly apologize and to give her a platform to talk about whatever she wanted to talk about Mm -hmm. and she passed away just two weeks later on october 2nd 2022 Hmm. yeah it when all of that was happening just a few weeks ago it felt like it was almost like unfinished business yeah yeah and it was very interesting is a lot of her talk about that evening, even just in the very brief window of time between that and her passing, she talked a lot about how she needed this before she passed or mm-hmm. how it felt like things were finally complete, mm-hmm. that they had come full circle and that her life had been fulfilled in some way in the sense of from where she started to where she finished, mm-hmm. um, which is very, very beautiful. And incredible to me that someone would have the grace and poise to behave that way because i would be angry mm. um she, i mean time heals a lot of wounds though too yeah 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 mm-hmm. and i mean it seems like she's a very gracious person so and i'm sure that her anger was righteous if she had it so it's telling that she said she was alone i mean i just like uh, looking back on this it's just so ridiculous th- that you of marlon brando like yeah it's unfair the the intention is good or fine or whatever. Like whether he was rightly intent, like had good intentions in his heart or his mind, but then to not like stand with her mm-hmm. in solidarity or show that like he was actually behind this. Cause I know a lot of people were like, he was not really behind this. Like that was one right. of the speculations. Right. When it like, after he the didn't know that this was actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. And she did this and like tricked him somehow. Mm-hmm. And like, Obviously, that wasn't true, but like, I don't know, like, be a real friend to her. Absolutely. It's the white savior complex where it's like, I have this idea of this thing I can do. And ultimately, it brings you a lot of glory or a lot of attention, but you don't have the infrastructure to complete it. Right. There's no way to support her after the fact. There was no plan or anything set in motion to help people at Wounded Knee or to actually do anything about the film or industry. to, like, produce a film yeah. where, like, yeah. he could cast a bunch of Native Americans in it. Yeah. I don't know. Like, exactly. so many other things that he could have done, given her money to make a film. Right. Like... Spent the rest of his career promoting indigenous actors and producers and writers. None of which he was interested in doing or wanted to do. Absolutely. Like, part of the problem, too, which I had mentioned, is like he was at such a low point in his career yeah. that, like, I don't know, I'm sure he was grasping at straws to like make a name for himself again, which he did by acting in this movie. <laughs> so it's like, I don't know. All very counterintuitive. He's just a weird person. Yeah. And, like, not the best. No, no. I have gone on a journey through this podcast. 
if you recall some earlier episodes <laughs> where I was really the savior of acting, really intense. I want you all to know that it's a journey because I am living this real time through yeah. his career. So I abandoned him back when he messed with my girl Rita Moreno. So for the record, I have not been on Team Brando for a while now. Anyway, <laughs> I just felt like I need to put that out there. Uh, okay. Well, that's what I have to share today. Um, of course, I do want to mention that there are lots of other things you can read. She's done lots and lots of interviews, so please take the time and watch some of them. Um, you can also read Marlon Brando's statement if you want to get a clearer picture of what all of this meant or was supposed to mean. Um, <laughs> I obviously am one white girl doing research at home, so I only have so much that I can offer to this commentary, but I find it to be very admirable on Sushin Littlefeather's part, specifically the way that she has lived her life and the influence she has made, regardless of Marlon Brando's involvement. Mm -hmm. So with that, allow me to very quickly go through the awards this year. Mm -hmm. Best Picture, of course, goes to The Godfather. Yeah. Best Director goes to Bob Fosse for a cabaret. I didn't even get to talk about, but whatever. There's a lot to talk about this week. Mm -hmm. Best Actor goes to Marlon Brando, uh, as you know, and he declines. Best Actress goes to Liza Minnelli for Cabaret. Mm -hmm. Congrats to her. I didn't even get to talk about her at all. Ah, Okay. Best Supporting Actor goes to Joel Grey for Cabaret. Another amazing performance that I also didn't get to talk about, but it's okay. Best Supporting Actress goes to Eileen Heckert for Butterflies Are Free. Best Screenplay based on factual material or material not previously produced or published. Original. (laughs) Goes to The Candidate. Best Screenplay based on material from another medium or... Adapted. <laughs> Thank you. Goes to The Godfather. Best foreign language film goes to The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, which is a French movie. Mm-hmm. Best documentary feature goes to Marjo. Best documentary short subject goes to This Tiny World. Best live action short subject goes to Norman Rockwell's World and American Dream. Best animated short subject goes to A Christmas Carol. Yeah. This is such a like it's a a weird... bizarre version. Yes. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's like kind of. It's British, right? Uh, yeah, kind of. But it was it was the one that was premiered on ABC. Yes, yeah. Anyways, it's it's not the Mickey one. No, but it's still a good one. Best original dramatic score goes to Limelight, Charlie Chaplin. Best scoring adaptation and original song score goes to Cabaret. Mm-hmm. Best song original for the picture. I talked about the controversy about this already. Goes to The Morning After from The Poseidon Adventure. Best costume design goes to Travels with My Aunt. Best sound design goes to Cabaret. Best art direction goes to Cabaret. Best cinematography goes to Cabaret. And finally, best film editing goes to Cabaret. Additionally, there are a couple of honorary awards. There's one given to L.B. Abbott and A.B. Flowers for the visual effects in The Poseidon Adventure. Mm -hmm. There's also two honorary awards given to Charles S. Boren and Edward G. Robinson and It was just in memorial of their careers. Mm. Both actors who worked for a long time during the Golden Age. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's all I have to say about that. So in the end, of course, even though they were tied with 10 nominations, Cabaret and Godfather, Cabaret comes out with eight wins, The Godfather with three, and The Poseidon Adventure with two. And that's it. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what I have to share today. Thank you for sticking through all of that. I appreciate you not giving up on me. And with that, let's take a little break here. And when we come back, you can tell us about The Godfather. Yeah. And we're back. Time for this year, 1972. Starting with some births. We have Common, Leslie Mann, Jennifer Garner, Carmen Electra, Dwayne Johnson, Wayne Brady, Carl Urban, Sophia Vergara, Maya Rudolph, Will Wheaton, Ben Affleck, Cameron Diaz, Idris Elba, Gwyneth Paltrow, Tony Collette, Thandie Newton, and Jude Law. All right. I really cut it down because <laughs> I'm tired of all these I was going to say, you usually have a lot of names. Yeah, there were a lot more that I've heard of, and I was just like, they're not famous enough. Sorry. Wow, it didn't make the cut. Um, Some debuts this year. We have Ned Beatty, Jerry Bruckheimer, Blythe Danner, Jodie Foster, Bob Hoskins, Samuel L. Jackson, Madeline Kahn, Ben Kingsley, John Lithgow, 
Steve Martin, Nick Nolte, Jeffrey Tambor, Lily Tomlin, and James Woods. Nice. Lots of fun people joining yeah. the industry. And then some deaths for this year in 1972. We have Maurice Chevalier, actor and singer. Oh, yeah. Um, he, he was, was nominated for Best Actor twice in 1929 and 1930. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a long time ago. <laughs> um, he was given an honorary award because he hadn't won up to this point, <laughs> the year that Gigi won Best Picture. Yes. Of course, he was in Gigi. Yes. He was so weird. Yeah, it's quite strange. He plays the uncle. Yeah. We have Walter Lang, director. He was nominated once for directing The King and I, um, but he also directed many other films. Uh, the Deborah Kerr one. Yes. J. Arthur Rank, who was a producer. He was one of the most important people in the British film industry, um, produced a lot of British films. Um, and he was kind of the one who was like, we're going to make the British film industry as good as Hollywood. In the mm -hmm. early days. Mm -hmm. um, so he actually created um, and helped fund the creation of Pinewood Studios. Oh, Very neat. famous yeah. British studios. Um, next, we have George Sanders. He was an actor. He won for Best Supporting Actor in oh. All About Eve. Yeah. Of course, he was in Rebecca. Yeah. Um, one of his most famous roles was the voice of Shere Khan. Yeah, I love that guy. Yeah, great actor. Sidney Franklin was a producer. Um, he was the fifth recipient of the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award when Mrs. Miniver won Best Picture. Of course, he would have won the Best Picture Award for producing that film, but it was not given <laughs> to producers at that time. Brandon DeWilde, who was a child star and actor, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in Shane. Um, he died at only 30 years old in a mm. car accident. Uh, but he was kind of a wonder kid child actor of Your the time. Favorite. Oscar Levant, he was a pianist and composer and actor. He was in An American in Paris. Oh, wow. Just wanted to mention him because we talked about him a lot. Yeah. Um, he did a lot of stuff for the music and he played the piano yeah. in the film as well. So many great performers. Yeah. A lot of the classics they're going. Um, Max Fleischer, uh, he was an animator. He was the inventor of the rotoscope for early animation techniques. Um, he also created the characters Betty Boop and Popeye. Aww. Um, so he was the other sort of like big person on the scene with Walt Disney. Gotcha. Kind of innovating at the same time. Mm -hmm. Miriam Hopkins, actress, nominated for Best Actress for Becky Sharp in 1935. This made her the first person to be nominated in a color film. Ah. Interesting little record she held there. <laughs> um, she also had a long-running feud with Betty Davis. Amazing. I love anyone with a feud with Betty Davis. Um, and then two, uh, like downs of her career that she oh. always talked about was she was originally cast in the leading role in It Happened One Night. Oh, man. And she was one of the last three in the running for Scarlet in Gone oh, with the Wind. Oh, man. Poor lady. Um, she was the only actress in the running from Georgia. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. I'm sure she wanted it so bad. Of course, both of those roles went on to win Best Actress. Yeah, and become like iconic. Yes. We have William Dieterle, director. Um, he directed The Life of Emile Zola and was nominated uh, for Best Director for that film. Of course, that year he lost to Leo McCary. Mm. Um, and last but not least, we have Luella Parsons, um, was a columnist. She was considered the queen of Hollywood gossip. Yeah. Um, until... Hedda Hopper mm -hmm. came onto the scene. Um, she was the one famous for all of the hubbub surrounding Orson Welles. <laughs> and I think we talked about that quite we a did. bit. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, that kind of like was supposed to slam him, but helped sort of make his uh, Citizen Kane more famous. Yeah. I don't know. Infamous. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so she was the columnist behind all of that. Um, so a couple little uh, things from this year about other films and things, the industry. HBO transmitted its first programming to its first Whoa. 365 subscribers. Wow. They were all located in the Wilkes-Barre, PA area. Yeah, Pennsylvania. Um, its first broadcast was the 1970 film Sometime a Great Notion, uh, and it was completely commercial and interruption-free. 
opening the door to more pay TV channels to exist. Interesting. Changing the game. Yeah. It was like the first like paid for channel mm-hmm. and people were like, I don't know. That seems weird. <laughs> well, if you pay, there's no commercials. <laughs> I don't know if I want to pay for a streaming service. Hmm. History just cycles and cycles. Hmm. Then uh, another thing that I wanted to mention was about the film, uh, The Poseidon Adventure. Um, an interesting tidbit about this film and the Oscars, uh, because it has one of uh, the largest cast of former Oscar winners. Oh, interesting. So it's just one of those weird films that like has a lot of people in it. So it had five previous Oscar winners in the film, huh. in the cast. Gene Hackman, Ernest Borgnine, Jack Albertson, Shelley Winters, and Red Buttons. Wow. Red Buttons is back. <laughs> <laughs> so just a little interesting Oscar piece of trivia there. Five former winners. Um, also this year, we have the 25th Emmy Awards. All and the Family and the Waltons are the big winners. Mm. Uh, the Julie Andrews Hour wins for Best Yay. Variety, which is fun, over Carol Burnett. Oh. Two um, queens. Two queens. And another big uh, thing that happened on television this year was Liza with a Z. Um, oh, yes. A big television event, uh, which gave uh, Bob Fosse and Liza Minnelli an even bigger year. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about them more. Yeah. Um, also this year was the 27th Tony Awards. Um, the championship season won Best Play. And A Little Night Music won Best Musical. Good. With six wins overall, uh, beating Pippin, which also came oh, out the same year. Two very different musicals. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, of course, Pippin won five. So they okay. were neck and neck. Yeah. Wow. Good in their own rights. Yeah. Um, and then this brings us to The Godfather. All right. I, I'm so curious what you have prepared for us today because I feel like there's endless Godfather trivia out there. Yeah, so I have kind of gotten the stuff that's most interesting to me. Um, you can go and, I mean, there's so much out there about this film and the making of this film and like so much behind the scenes. Francis Ford Coppola has talked about this like endlessly as well as Marlon Brando did so many interviews on it. Al Pacino, you know, Robert Duvall. They've talked about it endlessly because it was like the main thing that they've done (laughs) with their careers. But anyways, uh, so I have a few little things to talk about. But first, a recap. Uh, A little bit longer because it is quite a convoluted plot. That is true. I did not know what I was getting into. So the story follows the Corleone family led by Vito and his conciliary, Tom Hagen, and his middle son, Santino, or Sonny. We see the amount of control that Vito has over people when he sends Tom to Hollywood to get his nephew Johnny a leading role, resulting in the beheading of studio head Wolz's prize horse. Wanting to get the Corleones involved in the growing drug rings in New York, Salazzo is sent by the Tatalia family to convince them to join in the drug market. Vito refuses, not wanting his political relationships to be sullied, and in an act of retaliation is attacked and almost killed. This causes the youngest son, Michael, to join in the family business to help protect his father. While at the hospital, Michael is punched by a cop that has been paid off by the Tatalia family, and the Corleones hatch a plan to have Michael kill both the cop and Salazzo, one of the heads of the Tatalias. After he does, he goes into hiding for a year in Sicily, where he meets and marries Apollonia. Meanwhile, the Tatalias strike back, killing Sonny. When news reaches Michael, Along with people connected to the Tatalia family who murder Apollonia, Michael is forced to go home and take charge. Once he returns, Vito dies, leaving Michael to become the new godfather of the family. Michael has hatched a scheme, so while becoming godfather to his own nephew, leaders of the five families, among other major crime lords, are killed, putting the Corleones back on top. Michael is now ready to move the family's operation to Vegas, taking over a casino that will enrich them for generations to come. That's a pretty good way to say it. <laughs> yeah. Got all the uh, high points in yeah, there and yeah. some low points. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this film, the budget is a little up in the air. Lots of different numbers have been thrown out there. But basically, it was around $7 million that was spent on this film. And it ended up grossing $290 million. 
Uh, oh my gosh. So it was number one at the box office uh, in 1972. Was the second film ever to gross $100 million in its initial release, um, right behind The Sound of Music. Uh, but it was the fastest to ever do so, achieving the milestone in only 18 weeks. Nice. Which is pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, it beat out then record holder Gone with the Wind for the highest grossing film wow. of all time. Wow. Yeah. That is a long time to hold that record. Well, others have broken it and then it surpassed them again in a re-release. Oh, so gotcha. Gone Over with the time. Wind has gotten the record and lost the record a few <laughs> times already. Kind okay. of like Avatar currently. Um, it is still number 25 all time adjusted for inflation. Mm. Um, so the films that are right around it, uh, Fantasia is at number oh. 24. The Graduate, of course, we've talked about at number 23. Right behind The Godfather at 26 is Forrest Gump. And 27 is Mary Poppins, which we've also talked about. Interesting. So another one of those, like, just extremely popular. Yeah. Everyone went to go see it. Yeah. Which I guess is why, like, it's so famous now, because everybody's seen it. Yeah. (laughs) So I just wanted to talk a little bit about Francis Ford Coppola. Because he's just one of the biggest people in the industry history. Um, and we haven't talked about him at all yet. No. This is his first thing on the scene? Uh, No. He won an Academy Award for Patton. Patton. Okay. Yes, okay. Because okay. he wrote the script. For right. That. Right. Okay. Reminder that Kristen doesn't know film history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even when we've talked about it on the podcast. Um, so he was born in Detroit, but he moved to New York City early in his childhood. Um, his father was a flautist and a composer. Um, his grandfather was also a famous Italian composer. And they moved there when his father was transferred from the like Detroit Symphony Orchestra to an orchestra in New York City. Um, so he ended up graduating from Hofstra University with a degree in theater, and then he went to UCLA's film school. Okay. Very, very trained. Yes. Um, he is considered one of the, like, first and, like, successful people to come out of film school. Oh, cool. Okay. To be, like, a director or something. Yeah, right. Um, he and George Lucas came up at, like, the same time. They were very good friends. Gotcha. And, like... That makes a lot of sense in the timeline because, like, I'm sure, like, the film school stuff had to be figured out. Like, yeah. there wasn't a lot of merit to it for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, and the only ones that were really considered good were, like, USC. Right. Which is where George Lucas went. New York Film Academy. And U- UCLA, which is mm-hmm. where Francis Ford Coppola went. Gotcha. And then, of course, NYU was yeah. also considered in that because there was a lot of New York stuff. Anyways... Um, He worked on a variety of random projects while he was at school and sort of like in between things. This ended up culminating in his thesis film in 1966, You're a Big Boy Now, which ended up being purchased for distribution through Warner Brothers. And it got his lead actress, Geraldine Page, an Oscar nomination. Wow. So Uh, pretty amazing. (laughs) Um, So that was his thesis film for UCLA. Um, He then made Finian's Rainbow and The Rain People. Both are considered like cult classics because they were made by him. Sure. Um, but they're not great. <laughs> Finally, he had his script of the film Patton produced, and that's how he won his first Academy Award. No. Um, it was kind of lucky for him because uh, George C. Scott read a couple variations of the script and was sort of like, I like this script the best, and like, if you want me to be in the film, uh, that's the, like, the version that I want to do. Gotcha. So... It was kind of thanks to him. And it was a good script. Academy winning script. Yeah. Then suddenly he was in the right place at the right time when Paramount decided they were finally going to make Mario Puzo's The Godfather. <laughs> um, so they had purchased the rights to the film before it had even been published and agreed on a pretty low sliding scale that was dependent on how well the book sold. So they had received like a 20 page treatment from Puzo. Mm early on in the writing of it, because he was like, oh, this will probably make a good film later on. The sliding scale ended up only maxing out at $80,000, which is what they ended up paying for the rights, which Mm. is kind of crazy, because the book was a bestseller. So it did really well. Sure. So they had the rights then. Burt Lancaster desperately tried to purchase the rights from Paramount. Oh, my gosh. uh, Because he wanted to create and star in his own version of the story. Um, he offered as much as a million dollars to buy the rights from them. And they were like, no, we know we've got a hit. I don't know. I mean, interesting. it's just very strange. They just decided to refuse his offer. Um, he didn't it was make... an offer they could refuse. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, 
Which just seems really weird because it doesn't seem like a Burt Lancaster type of thing, but... I mean, I can see it. Yeah, I don't know. And also, like, easy money. They spent 80000 on this and they could have... Made a million made back. Made a million back. Immediately yeah. doing nothing? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Um, as word got out that The Godfather was going to be adapted, the Italian-American Civil Rights League, which was led by mobster Joseph Colombo, began threatening Paramount and producer Robert Evans. So internal conversations about the film began to be held, and it was decided that as many Italian-Americans that could be hired for the film should, <laughs> so that they could stay out of trouble, avoid the mafia, and also try to be true to the story. Um, so at this point, Italian-Americans were not featured very prominently in American films, mm. which is interesting that you mentioned Sasheen Littlefeather had like been asked to play Italian. Yeah. Um, it well, was just a weird... Or to be in Italian films. Oh, okay. In yeah. Italian films. So it was just a weird thing that that was another people group that was being left out sure. of American films. Well, specifically like Sicilian Italian yeah. people. There was all kinds of stereotyping at the time oh, that yeah. Italian people and Sicilian people were very dangerous yeah. or very, mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, so that was part of why the Italian American Civil Rights League wanted to be involved too, <laughs> because they were like, are you going to portray us as dangerous? Are you going to... Sure. Also, some people were like, are you going to release like a mafia secrets? Right, like, mafia information. They didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I would be concerned too. So this led Paramount to reach out to Francis Ford Coppola uh, because he could be paid very little to direct <laughs> the film and he was Italian-American. Win-win. <laughs> the relationship was very rocky at the start, uh, mostly because Coppola wanted Marlon Brando for the titular role of The Godfather. But Paramount and Hollywood were very eager to distance themselves from him because yeah. he was basically known as, like, the most troublesome actor to work with yeah. on set. Mm -hmm. Paramount's top choice was Ernest Borgnine, actually. Oh, my goodness. Which would have been very interesting. That would be very different. Yeah. Though Laurence Olivier was in the mix. Of course he was. He always um, is. And Burt Lancaster. They actually... Like, we're interested in casting him. I could definitely see him doing something like this. And I feel like he was probably in the mix and like, hey, I'll still help produce and yeah. like, get he, me on board, please. He is an artist yeah. through and through. Paramount finally relented, uh, but on the condition that Brando agree to an audition or a screen test and that he only work for profit share, not an actual salary. Ah. Because they were very worried that they would pay him a bunch of money. And then he'd And then dip. he'd be like... No, thank you. Yeah, for sure. That's smart. So basically, they were ensuring that he would work for his money mm -hmm. and also do an audition. Coppola knew that Brando was not going to do an audition. <laughs> and Brando like basically thought he had the role already. Of course he did. So Coppola, under the guise that he was already a lock, um, decided to take cameras and equipment to Brando's house to <laughs> oh film him finding the character. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially he tricked brando into like finding the character on camera for like a whole day <laughs> oh he beat him at his own game i love yeah. it he spent hours putting him on tape while he tried different versions of the character uh finally landing on the voice the mannerisms and filling his cheek with cotton balls that gave him the specific look and vocal cadence that he was after so Brando got tricked into doing this. I love it. And Coppola got the footage he needed. I love it. So he took it to the executives at Paramount. And when they saw the final version of the character, they were like, okay, great. Yep. He's in the <laughs> film. He'll be perfect. His agreement to the profit share also worked in his favor uh, because oh, the film time. became the highest grossing of all time yeah. up to that point. So he made so much more money than he would have made for this film. That is such a risky move. But when it pays off, it really pays off. Yeah. So the other actor that Coppola was sure that he wanted in the film was Al Pacino, um, who was still a newcomer in Hollywood, and he had only been in two other films before The Godfather. Oh. Hmm. Paramount really wanted Robert De Niro to be in the film. Uh, he was another relatively fresh face in Hollywood, but he was coming up a lot faster than gotcha. some of the other new people. Um, Paramount wanted him for the part of Polly. Oh. Um, hmm. who was, you know, a confidant of the family and who was their driver. He gets killed in the end. 
then for the character of Michael, Paramount wanted a big name like Warren Beatty or Robert Redford. Ah. Uh, um, Coppola went back to them and he was like, I thought we were supposed to be casting... Italians? Italians. <laughs> because they had already cast James Caan, who was not Italian, to play Sonny. Right. Um, so he was kind of like, well, I don't want to work with them. Also, they're not Italian. So like, what are we doing here? Yeah. So... Yeah, James Caan was a very interesting casting choice to me he was good and also coppola was okay with him being in the film and not being italian because they went to school together okay (laughs) (laughs) so they both graduated from hofstra the same year all right all right all right (laughs) so pacino was supposed to be in the gang that couldn't shoot straight which was an mgm film at the time another gangster mobster type film Mm -hmm. um and he had won the lead role Mm. And it was going to be a big deal for him, a big mm-hmm. film for him. And so he was very hesitant to give this up. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Also, MGM was very hesitant to give him over to Paramount because they had just cast them. Right. They found a new guy. Right. Yeah. There ended up being a like settlement that was reached between Paramount and uh, Al Pacino and MGM. And it was assumed that it was that he would star in another MGM film. Uh, but up to this point in history, he has never been in an MGM film. Oh my gosh. Interesting. So no one really knows what the settlement was huh. that Paramount did yeah. to get him out of that film and get him in this film. When that happened, though, <laughs> the gang that couldn't shoot straight decided to go with their second choice and poached De Niro from <gasps> uh, uh, The Godfather. <laughs> So they switched roles, and then Coppola, of course, ended up casting De Niro in The Godfather Part Two yeah. to play the young version of Vito. Totally works out. So it all worked out in the end, but just kind of a weird Can thing. Can you imagine them like having a drink after work one day and be like, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> the last like very strange thing that I'm going to talk about uh, was the casting decisions for the character of Johnny Fontaine, who is the singer who is given a part in a war film after pressure from the Corleones against the studio head. Right. So, of course, there's the famous scene with the head of the horse in the bed. Yeah. Would you believe it? I had never seen that. It was shocking to me. Yes. Uh, It is also very shocking, and it's a very well-known thing that was corroborated many times that it is, in fact, a real horse head that they (gasps) used. Have you not heard this? No. Okay. I don't know any Godfather trivia. So they got a lot of like flack for this. Oh my gosh. Because they were like, we can't make a prop that looks like a real decapitated horse head. That is going to look real. How did they decapitate it? Well. I mean, I know how you decapitate something, but like, (laughs) what? So they got it from, this is so horrible, a dog food factory. Oh, Penny's concerned. Oh, Penny, don't miss it. So it was already killed (laughs) to be made into dog food. (laughs) Um, What is Marlon Brando doing? Why isn't he like doing animal rights activism that is clearly happening on his own set? Yeah. Um, So that is one thing about this whole scenario. That's pretty crazy. Mr. Coppola, I'd like a word. So also the rumors are that the character in the book was based on Frank Sinatra, who was a singer who wanted a part oh, in a film. Uh, who wanted a part specifically in a war film. <gasps> interesting. That the studio heads did not want him to be in, uh-huh. called From Here to Eternity. Uh-huh. Uh, then, for which, suddenly he was in the film. Mm-hmm. And then he won an Academy Award for it. Mm-hmm. So that is the rumor of where this story came from. And Al Martino, who was an actor and singer, was originally cast as Johnny Fontaine, but he was replaced when Coppola was brought on. They kind of shifted a bunch of random cast people who were already in the film, and they switched them up. He ended up going to his godfather, (laughs) crime boss Russell Buffalino, who orchestrated a plot to get the other actor that had replaced him fired, getting Martino the role back, in which he'd be playing somebody who had to go to his godfather <gasps> to get a rollback. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Did it work? I guess it worked. Yeah. Wow. So he was in the film playing Whoa. literally the real life scenario of how he made it into the godfather. 
That is so bizarre. So weird. Whoa. Those are like the main things that I wanted to mention. Are those things this. everybody else knows that I just don't know? Um, Some of them are okay. and some of them aren't. I wasn't I mean, sure how common that knowledge is. There's a lot of other stuff about, you know, Marlon Brando. There's pictures of people wearing their his lines because he didn't want to memorize his lines. Oh That's oh like gosh. one of the stories. Yeah. So like people would wear big placards of his lines you know, to while it's out. doing his close up so that they wouldn't be seen on camera and he would just read the lines. And, and part of like the mystique about Marlon Brando in the film is like, also when people heard that, they're like, so you didn't memorize the lines and you still were able to give that performance, which mm. is pretty impressive. Yeah. But I don't know. He's pretty good in it. And it's probably one of the best things he did. But he's also, like, not in the movie very much at all. I was so surprised. I thought it was going to be a Marlon Brando vehicle, and he's, like, incapacitated for most of it. Well, and part of that is just, like, goes to show the power of the character, too. I guess, yeah. Like, I don't know, stylistically. Anyways, so those are the things. Uh, One other person who, like, did not want to work with Coppola was Gordon Willis, the cinematographer. Um, but his career was like made after this film because of some of the <laughs> things that he was able to do yeah. for this film, um, especially the like yellow hues of all the, I don't know, it's very stylized the sure. way that he made the film. Definitely. And that's one thing that everybody likes to talk about. Yeah. So just mention him as well. Great cinematographer. And then he went on to work with Coppola a lot. So. <laughs> and of course, like the critics went crazy for this and everyone else, which is why it's still like held up as one of the best films sure. of all time. Yeah. Um, especially because it was pretty groundbreaking. It couldn't have been made 10 years earlier because, you know, people who were committing crimes were not allowed to be seen <laughs> as like positive or nuanced in any way. Yeah. Um, I think that's hard for me to remember sometimes when we talk about these movies that are like the most iconic, specifically this movie that like has gone down as one of the greatest films of all time. Because when I watch it, I'm like, I don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. But remembering the context of this has never been seen before. Yeah. Just 10 years earlier, all of this is not allowed. Like, well, it's like so groundbreaking. All the violence that was in it. Yeah. Paramount had to send a violence coach to the set not to help control the violence, but to make sure there was going to be enough violence so that it could like, because Coppola didn't want as much violence in the film. Oh my gosh. So Paramount was like, it has to have more violence. Send somebody to the set to make sure it's violent. <laughs> and that funny. the violence would be like fun and, you know. Impactful. Impactful and, and that they jarring. were pushing the boundaries. Sure. And like, so all that to say, yeah. I mean, that's why this film is so revered. Sure. And, you know, is it the best film of all time? No, probably not. To some people, a lot of people is, even say that the second one is right. even better. Yeah. yeah of course, the second one didn't sell as well as this one. And, like, yeah. You know, there, we'll get to that one because it also won Best Picture. <laughs> um, but, anyways, that's what I have to say about The Godfather. Hmm. It's definitely worth watching. Like, oh man, if you haven't seen it, in the scope of film history, you gotta see it. Like, it's one that should definitely be seen. Well, and it was one where when we started this podcast, I was like, I should watch that because I've never seen it, but I've waited mm-hmm. till now to see it because of the podcast. But you should see it if you are interested in film history, and if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are. Yeah. Um, with that, we come to our last segment of the show, where we like to thank the Academy for Ugh. things relating to this episode, these films, the people. So what would you like to thank the Academy for today, Kristen? I would like to thank the Academy for the resilience of people like Sushin Littlefeather who have to stand alone without the support of people in order to do what they think is right. Yeah. Um, And I don't care about this Oscars moment that much. I know that it is so impactful, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the aftermath of that. And how much bravery it takes to carry on and to not just hole up in your bedroom and disappear, but instead to continue fighting and being the center of attention and losing things maybe you want in order to do something you think is right. Yeah. I just very strongly disagree with a lot of how this happened, as most people do, I think, looking back. It's a lot easier to see the mistreatment Mm -hmm. and the ways in which even just trying to do a stunt like this was harmful to a lot of people Mm -hmm. and a lot of people within her culture also. But that said, 
uh, her bravery and resilience are incredible. And listen to some of her interviews if you have a chance, because they're very, very interesting. Yeah. I would like to thank the Academy for the supporting cast in this film. Uh, oh, yeah. It's such a huge cast. And they're all, like, incredible actors. Um, Robert Duvall, mm. Al Pacino. It's kind of the lead of the film, also. Yeah. So many great people who went on to have amazing careers. James Caan is mm-hmm. another one. But it's just, like, filled with so many people. I mean, the amount of, like, characters in this film is pretty staggering. Yeah. And also, like, trying to keep track of them all. and like. But there's, like, not a bad performance in the film. No. Which is pretty impressive. Yeah, definitely. And you really have to have a totally solid cast for something like this film to work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So thanks to them. Yeah. Without James Caan's great performance in this, we never would have gotten Elf. And then where would we be? (laughs) (laughs) That's all I could think about the whole time was you're on the naughty list. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I mean, he definitely is on the naughty list. I know. I know why he is. (laughs) I would like to thank the Academy for the amazing work of two women who made a huge leap in acting this year, Mm -hmm. Diana Ross and Cecily Tyson. Yeah. They both gave great performances and got Best Actress nominations. And I think that that's worth mentioning and talking about the progress that is happening there Mm -hmm. in that not only are films being made with Black women as the leads that are being praised, multiple are. Mm -hmm. And they're allowed to be considered as equals and like, be nominated the same way you would nominate anybody else. And it's not like just like a token nomination here and there. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good step forward. And obviously they're both wonderful actresses and a great singer too. Mm-hmm. And I would like to thank the Academy for musicals. Musicals. <laughs> <laughs> a great musical was uh. nominated and won a lot of awards this year for uh 1972 films um and we'll talk more about this yeah we'll do an academy archives episode a lot about it but yeah obviously cabaret is an incredible movie musical it's one of my very favorites i wish that it had won also Um, has an incredible supporting cast yes incredible leads in it bob fossey amazing director amazing musical performer and dancer in his own right uh yeah great film yes all around glad that it was uh recognized by the academy for so many things yes except best picture yeah got the nomination (laughs) well with that uh we leave you yes and thank you for joining us yeah thanks for sticking with our strange schedule the past couple months that's what you get for trying to do a podcast and uh yeah. Work in the industry. Uh, but we're back on our totally regular schedule now. Yes. Uh, for the foreseeable future until the holidays. <laughs> in like a couple weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but join us next week when we bring you a new Academy Archives. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinger. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.